0: Hello, and welcome to Moments That Made Her, a podcast where the rare and unique women that hold senior private equity roles share their stories, including the key personal and professional moments that define their journeys and the lessons that they learned along the way. I'm Kirstie McGuire, Executive Director of PEWIN. For those of you joining us for the first time, Moments That Made Her is a production of the Private Equity Women Investor Network also known as PEWIN. We are the preeminent organization for senior-level women investment professionals in private equity. PEWIN provides its members with opportunities to network, share ideas, make deep connections with peers, and empower each other to succeed. Our mission is to increase the profile of women in private equity, and our members represent institutions with over $3 trillion in assets under management. To learn more, please visit pewin.org. The host of Moments That Made Her is Kelly Williams. Many of you know Kelly as the founding chair of PE Win, as well as the founder of the legendary private market solution business known as the Customized Fund Investment Group, which she and her team grew to manage $30 billion of assets until she let it sail in 2014. She is now the CEO of the Williams Legacy Foundation. And serves on the board of the Greenbrier Companies and Grasshopper Bank, and chairs the board of the Smithsonian American Art Museum. Thank you for joining us for today's episode.
1: Welcome to our latest episode of Moments That Made Her. I'm your host and the founding chair of P.E. Wynn, Kelly Williams. I am delighted today that my guest is Sarah Wollner, who's a partner at Promise Holdings in Chicago. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Kelly. So excited to be here. Well, I'm very excited to have you here. We have lots to talk about. I should mention Sarah is part of our um, our Chicago chapter, which is just an extraordinary group of PEWIN members. They are so creative. They are always come up, coming up with amazing ideas. Sarah's been a major part of that. So I that's one of the reasons I'm so excited to have her here. Um, and I'm going to start with you where I start with everybody, just so we can learn a little bit about who you are. So
2: tell us a little bit about how and where you grew up. Sure. So I grew up as the oldest child um, in a suburb north of Detroit. My parents are both public school teachers. They taught high school, now retired. And um, I grew up in a, a pretty affluent area uh, in the northern suburbs of Detroit, and that really, I think, influenced, um, you know, where I ended up. And so where where in Detroit was that? What's the neighborhood? Sure, I grew up in West Bloomfield. West Bloomfield, okay.
1: Um, I know that area. Well, y- you, you yeah. probably know um, the State of Michigan retirement system was my very first client, and the state of Michigan is much beloved by me, and I spent tons of time there, including in Bloomfield Hills. One of my um, amazing partners there in the state of Michigan. Um, his offices were there, so I know it well. Um, and so so you're the oldest of how many?
2: Oldest of two. I have a younger brother, 18 months younger than ah, I am. I have a younger sister who's 11 months younger. We are the proverbial Irish twins. Um, and so what was your first job? You know, I don't remember not working. As soon as I had a chance to get a job, I did. I babysat uh, extensively. My parents had a bee business on the side, so I was always rolling candles and selling honey. My first real W-2 paycheck job was as a hostess at a family restaurant when I was 15.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. So that's, uh, yeah, that's very, um, that's a very eclectic background. I'm I'm fascinated by the bee business. <laughs>
2: um,
1: that So uh, my husband, we... we most people know we have a place in Nantucket and um our neighbors have uh, have started raising bees and so my husband is part of this little collective of neighbors who tend to the bees. He has this whole beekeeper outfit and uh very cool, fascinating.
2: It is, yep. I uh I've worn the beekeeper outfit a few times. My my dad would keep Usually the hives were in uh, nearby areas, but he would often have one in the backyard. So it's not unusual to see someone walking around where I grew up with the bee suit. Very cool. We may need to see a picture of that someday. Um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you this. If, you know, um, given where you grew up and, and the, that kind of eclectic group of, of first jobs, is there a moment that you can point to in your life that you feel like?
2: really changed you? Sure. I can go back to, um, in high school, I went to an all girls private high school. And I think maybe I was probably a junior in high school. And there was a, you know, maybe today we'd call him a motivational speaker came in to talk to us about what we wanted to do next in life. And it was the worst advice I ever had that so many people get. And he said, you know, if you major in something you feel passionately about, you'll never work a day in your life. And I was like, oh, that sounds really good. I don't really want to work a day in my life. So at that point, I mean, I was an all-A student. I was good at math, at reading, French. Um, But what really stood out to me was that I was better than most and better than, you know, many people at art, Um, mostly the fine arts, drawing and painting. And I thought, okay, you know, I'm really not passionate about math, even though I'm good at it. And reading is always a nice hobby. Um, I could speak French on vacations, but I'm going to major in art. And so that then set me off really on a path that um, I said it was the worst advice I ever got. So I think you can understand, you know, that it was something I can't say I later regretted it, because if I regretted it, I wouldn't be here. And I'm quite happy with the way things worked out. But it's certainly something that I took to heart in a way that that maybe I shouldn't have. Because now I, I am quite passionate about math and many other subjects. But it took me down the road of deciding to go to art school uh, at the University of Michigan. And so, well, so that's really interesting
1: because, um, yeah, everyone has kind of heard what some of us may say is, uh, you know, trite advice, right? Um, follow your passion and you'll never work a day in your life. Um, of course, there are mm-hmm. certain passions you can follow where, while, while you may love every minute of it, it, it may actually not support you <laughs> There's a reason why there's the this the, <laughs> the, the phrase the starving artist. but what what is it about that experience that made you regret following that advice?
2: Well, again, I can't say I regret it because I am happy with the way things worked out, and it took me on a path that I you know may not have pursued. I didn't understand what business was in high school. Nobody in my in my parents' circle of friends was in business. They were all teachers. and um you know, my family members were mostly doctors, nurses, you know, people who were in the professional, personal services, and so I didn't know a thing about business. I actually thought it meant that you were either in a secretarial program or you worked at The Gap, and I did that too, and, and that really wasn't the path I was choosing. So I definitely didn't want to pursue business if I would have chosen, so maybe it's good that I started down the art path, and I ended up at a university that's very well-rounded, University of Michigan, and once I got in, I was able to take classes in engineering and classes in the business school. Meanwhile, you know, getting my 50 percent of the credit hours in art, I was able to see so many more things and um, and decide what I really was passionate about. So, you know, maybe if I could reframe that advice now, I would say keep your options open, um, you know, or never throw away a live option. Mm-hmm. And again, it did take me down a great path, but I don't know if you really understand what you feel passionately about, and sometimes things you feel passionately about can be great hobbies. I always tell um, people in high school and college now, the worst thing you can do is major in your favorite professor, because you can have a fantastic anthropology professor, a fantastic linguistics professor, and maybe it means you have an interesting hobby, but it may not be the best career for you. Yeah, I, well, I think that's great advice. I, I,
1: I really like the way you phrase that, you know, as I reflect, you know, as I think about um, giving advice to young people, you know, I had a political science and mathematics degree. I knew from the time I was a little girl, I wanted to be a lawyer. And of course, I did that for a little while, but um, that was not really how I spent my career. But what I have found is that um, it's not the classes I took in, um, you know, economics or statistics or, you know, any of my math classes that propelled me forward it's really the more as you say kind of eclectic classes on art history and -hmm. and other types of history and language and culture because I really think that what makes or adds to success is is being well-rounded at the end of the day Mm -hmm. it's about um, how can you connect with other people right? How, in our profession, how do you convince people to, you know, give you money to manage? How do you convince people, um, to take your money? How do you, how do you do the diligence on companies or managers? And a lot of that comes to, do you have a point of connection where you kind of get an insight into who those people are? And it's really being able to talk about all of these other things in our culture, and our lives that, that, um, I think give you the, the, uh, tools to do that. I mean, do you find that in in your career that you've been able to use that broad
2: um, educational experience that you had? Absolutely. And I think it it really illustrates the true um, expanse of diversity. You know, we can think about diversity in terms of gender and cultural background and race, but really diversity can come from so many different things. And it's all of those diverse experiences that uh, you know that add something unique. And you know, many people have have told me, "Oh, you have such a creative way of solving problems," or, you know, you look at things a little bit differently. Um, yeah, I do think having an art degree and so many different uh, you know deviations along the normal path uh, has led me to where I am today. So again, you know, very happy with how things turned out. It wasn't the typical path to private equity, that's for sure. Oh well. I love that. Um, and of course, I, I sort of came to art
1: at the opposite end of my career. Um, and so for me, it was, you know, once having, uh, having had some measure of success and being able to invest in art and um, become actively involved in the arts from a nonprofit standpoint, serving on boards, you know, I, I often say I, I use my powers for good now. So all of the, all of my my business acumen, I try to apply to uh, to helping museums and arts organizations operate a little bit more effectively. But um, I love I love that we share that, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about more about that later. Um, now, I want to ask: Given this very interesting um, start for you, how did you end up in
2: private equity? Sure. Um, so when I got out of undergrad. I started working at General Motors and I was, it was actually a very interesting role. I was in a hybrid position between design staff, which is the styling group and engineers. I was hired as an engineer, paid as an engineer. So that was great. Um, but I also could speak the language of the group at design staff to try to you know, bring these new concepts to development. And that worked great for about two months, and it was the 1991 uh, downturn. All of the new programs got canceled, and I found myself as just kind of a boring old seat engineer trying to make the uh, Pontiac Grand Am seat adjuster work a little bit better. (laughs) And I was like, okay, you know, let's pause here. You know, I started on the art school path. I took a lot of classes in engineering, some classes in business, let's just call it a do-over and so I went back to business school pretty quickly Um, I started two years later again at University of Michigan Um, nobody ever told me there were great colleges outside of the state I love the state of Michigan Um, and so then when I got out of or I was about to get out of business school I was like all right I think I got this straight I really like business I love finance I've got an interesting background as an operator one of the positions on campus and you're gonna actually you're gonna love this Kelly one of the positions that I interviewed for was with Masco Corporation. And Masco is a conglomerate of building products companies. So they have so many you know, kitchen cabinets, Baldwin brass, they had um, paint companies, wallpaper companies, and everything for the interior design space. They also, um, as you probably know, the Minugian family was uh, one of the larger shareholders of Masco, had one of the largest collections of art. Um, American painters, in particular. So I, you know, I knew a little bit about this, and I, in the position, was uh, manager of mergers and acquisitions, and I was like, hmm, that sounds pretty interesting. And I read about, you know, the short one paragraph they provided, and I was like, oh yeah, I can do this. And I walked into Masco, and I mean, it's just, it is a gallery quality, a museum gallery quality uh, facility, and they have a large portion of their paintings on every wall and then i walked through the showroom and it was just everything beautiful in home design and i was like oh my gosh i want this job so bad and <laughs> i didn't even get a call back <laughs> um, you know it was uh, it was yes again you know all things have worked out for a reason but i thought wow this is perfect i really 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 want a career in mergers and acquisitions and you know i didn't know the least thing in the world about mergers or acquisitions. Um, you know, I was a bright person, but there were a lot of bright people interviewing for the job. So I left feeling like, oh, you know, there's kind of an itch that that I needed to keep scratching. And I went into consulting for a few years. Um, and then after a couple of years of consulting, my original division at General Motors said, hey, we just got spun out. We're bought by a private equity firm. You know, we... Are gonna go do great things. We can shake a lot of the baggage that we know you didn't like about being in a big, stodgy old company, and we've got this private equity backing. And I was like, okay, this you know this sounds cool. I said, what title do you want? I'm like, I want to be the manager of mergers and acquisitions. <laughs> and they said, okay, you got it. So I was so fortunate that I had uh, you know mentors along the way who taught me finally how to do that job that I you know always wanted. Um, you know, for the right reasons or otherwise, and it was great because it did rely on my experience as an operator, my experience, you know, understanding the product, understanding the people on the plant floor, um, but then also using uh, a finance degree. And I really liked, you know, being owned by a private equity firm. I was like, you know, I really like this M and A thing, but I still don't really want to work for an auto supplier. Um, you know, that's the job I want. And um, we were owned by JLL. And so that's how I got in, got interested in private equity. And um, for about three years, three or four years, I was doing corporate development, corporate M&A for a few auto suppliers, and eventually landed a position at Winpoint Partners, uh, originally as a vice president and uh, left as a principal, finally getting the, uh, that M&A position that i in private equity that I wanted. And that was 2000. So my first question, I love this
1: story, by the way. Oh my God, there's just so much to unpack here. But um, (laughs) my first question to you is, what's your favorite car?
2: Oh, good question. Um, Well, if I could just say my favorite car, and it doesn't have to be my only car, I really like the kind of the late 50s, early 60s era, whether it's a Thunderbird or an old Corvette. Um, I really do like the, uh, the vintage cars, um, maybe even something, you know, British that would be, that would be great too. And then, um, you know, right now, if you live in the Chicago suburbs, there's not a whole lot of a need for a car. So I don't get to indulge that, uh, that question very often. Well, um,
1: I'm I'm a car girl. I think I've talked about that before on the podcast. It's, oh, I didn't. Yeah, know. it's something Suzanne Yun and I talk about because she likes cars too. So, uh, for my 40th birthday, right. I bought myself um, a Mercedes 280SL, the the pagoda, which is the cute little coupe, uh, the convertible coupe. And then for my uh, 50, 50th, call. I bought myself a um, a Mercedes Gullwing, uh, which is no longer in production. And so that was a very cool car. And then over during COVID, I bought myself a Mercedes 280 SE, which is more of the sedan, the the convertible sedan. So you could tell I love Mercedes. I'm a big Mercedes fan. Um, But yeah, no, I love vintage cars. I'm I'm passionate about vintage cars. And uh, luckily down here in Florida, we can drive our convertibles a lot. But I I love to talk to other women who like cars because it's not something that you know, it's normally associated with women, but why would we not like cars? Why mm-hmm. would we not like fast cars? I love to drive fast. So um, I, I love Absolutely. I love that you have that, a background in designing cars. I think that's so cool.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then um, – It was a lot yeah, of Yeah, I agree with you. I, I mean, my goodness, if I could have had a job that involved uh, art and interior design, um, two of my big passions. I'm You know, I serve on the board of the New York School of Interior Design. And I just designed my, my house. So, um, I get why you would have wanted that job. And I think there's lots of Baldwin brass and other of their products Um, here in my house. (laughs) As I think about it, I'm like, I'm pretty sure my doorknobs came from there. Um, but, but I love this, uh, story because you, at the essence, you figured out what about your experiences you were enjoying and you parlayed that into, Mm -hmm. uh, into the career. And, um, and JLL, very interesting company. I mean, a private equity firm, you know, they, they've kind of had an interesting past. Paul Levy's actually uh, down here in Palm Beach. I, I see him periodically. He's a big art collector. I don't know if if he was when you were, were owned, but um, he has a really impressive art collection. So something to talk about with him someday. Um, well, so it's not always the case, even though people end up in private equity, that they end up you know, making it up to the the senior ranks, right? As you said, you left WinPoint as a principal. You're a partner at your current firm. Mm -hmm. What do you think it is about who you are or the experience that you've had that has led you into the senior ranks of the industry?
2: You know, for a while, it's, it's a work ethic. It's having good instincts. It's being able to connect with people, motivate people to, you know achieve the the goals and the in the plan that you set out when you acquire a company um, but eventually it really becomes you know and I think that's really gets you well through the principal rank at the partner rank you know you can take it in maybe two in two directions and when they come together that's when it's you know, really fantastic one is is motivating and organizing a group of people to lock arms with you and accomplish the same goals where I'd say as a principle, you know, you you kind of need to have sharp elbows so that you can get to the, you know, to the top of the ranks. Um, I always struggled with that part. And, um, you know, but then once you're at the partner level, it's more about, about opening your arms and saying, come join me. You know, here's my goal. Here's my dream. Here's my vision. And I was so lucky other people did that to me and brought me along. And now I try to, you know, grab the flag and, and keep moving with it. But then there's also the, you know, okay, now we still need to do something to create value. Where exactly do we want to um, invest? Do we want to do, you know, lower middle market, upper middle market? Do we want to do growth equity or traditional buyouts? And that's been really exciting for the last, um, you know, I guess, eight, 10, 12 years at PROMIS is trying to decide where do we really want to be? Because it's a very flexible mandate when our limited partners, our investor group, are um, you know, primarily uh, ultra high net worth families, family offices, people who have many options, and so you know having that vision and doing the uh, asset allocation is very interesting. So, Sarah, you said a really interesting thing in your um, your response
1: about you know one of the challenges is at what point do you get people to lock arms with you? And I think that's one of the most important things that. That women need to learn in their career. I mean, I, I very much am of the view that women are born with innate leadership skills, but the thing that we have to learn to cultivate is the followership skills, getting people to follow us. And so can you talk a little bit about, you know, what you do in, in your career and your practice to not only just get your partners to follow you, but also the, the, the people, you know, uh, who are more junior than you are to uh, to follow your vision.
2: Sure, and that's been a real uh, a learning experience for the last ten years. When I first got started in private equity, um, you know, I kind of came out of what was traditional business school mantra of teamwork, 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 and everything's better as a team. And so I was going to be the best team player in that private equity firm, and. You know any any kind of odd job or distasteful project? I'm like, oh yeah, I'll do that. They'll appreciate me as a team player, and that was really stupid. Um, I, I ended up, you know, working on everyone else's turnaround deals. You know, I didn't close those deals, and now here they were, uh, you know, struggling with uh, covenant defaults and struggling with leadership changes. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'll help out, guys. Throw me in, coach, and uh, you know, realized I didn't have enough time for my own uh, deals. So. I figured that out along the way and that, you know, at some point you really do need to be the person that pounds the table and advocates for a deal and says, you know what, I'll work on these other things and, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take care of what we have. But I also really want to say, you know, darn it, this is my deal. This is the deal I want to do. It's a great investment. And you have to first convince yourself and then convince others. And that's what people want to hear. Um, You know, I love to hear a level of conviction from my partners and my colleagues right now. And I think it's a hard thing for women to do because we want, some of us, uh, you know, I always wanted to be the understudy or the person who made good things better. And it was uh, it was difficult for me to, to go to that level of saying, all right, you know, here's a good thing, let's do it. And actually, you know, people fall in line it, very easily. I used to, you know, I used to feel bad asking someone to help or work on my team. and. And then somebody once said, like, Sarah, we we want to do this. Why don't we, you know, why aren't you letting us have the chances that you had to prove yourself? Um, and I was like, oh, OK. And, you know, I've become, I, I wouldn't say a good delegator, but just maybe a different way of thinking about teamwork, which is to let everybody have a role and to let everybody have a good role because that's what they want to do. Yeah, I think that's
1: a great, um, I think that's a really great explanation of it, i I used to joke about some of my male partners that, you know, their definition of of teamwork was a bunch of people running around doing what they said. Um, And so, (laughs) but you know, actually that's not such a bad thing. It's just, how do you convince people to listen to you? In my experience, one of the things that women have to do, and, and this gets to your point about always being a team player, people need to see you win. And sometimes we as women are so busy trying to include everyone in our successes that we sublimate the fact that we were the leader of that success. Like it was our idea. It was our plan. We executed on it. You know, we trouble did all the troubleshooting. We solved the problems. Um, Mm -hmm. And so the way one of the ways to really get people to buy into um, your leadership is to let them see you win and don't
2: be ashamed of taking credit for the win. That is so well put, uh, Kelly, and something that I absolutely need to learn more of. Um, you know, I do, I have winner's remorse more often than I care to admit. Okay, well, so something we're all going to work on, um, for sure. <laughs> absolutely, thank you.
1: So yeah. let me ask you this. I mean, given that you were in the automotive industry and then in the private equity industry, have there been periods of time when you've been particularly aware of the fact that you're a woman? Um, and And kind of how did that,
2: manifest? How did you, how did you deal with that? Sure. I mean, I'm frequently aware of it. Nothing makes me more irritated of all of the opportunities to be irritated is when someone swears and then says, excuse me, Sarah, or pardon my French. I'm like, well, that's not French. And you don't need to apologize. Like you shouldn't have said it if you didn't want to say it. But um, I guess maybe the, the better way to answer the question is that I don't, usually see myself as standing out or as being unique because I see the world from my perspective which is a room full of guys and you know that's cool I like working with guys I've been doing it for 30 years now and um, and you know and it's and it's worked out great they see me as different because when they walk in a room they see one woman at the table and um, I just see a room full of people and it's kind of like like the ugly duckling story the poor swan didn't even realize that she was different she just thought she was a duck. Yeah. So I, I don't, I'm not as aware of it, I think, as other people are. Right. Yeah. Now, I think that's a great way to describe it. And I think
1: often as women, it, you know, you're sometimes described as, a, you know, um, a guy's gal or, you know, I remember one of my partners saying, one, one of my partners who had recently joined the team back when we first started the firm said to another male partner, wow, Kelly Kelly's really easy to work with. And the other partner said, Kelly's as close to a man as you're ever going to find in a woman. And I was like, okay, well, how do I feel about that? Do I feel, and I realize at the end of the day, you know, often the key to success in anything is making other people feel comfortable, right? If they feel comfortable around you, that means they trust mm-hmm. you. Other things kind of flow from that. And so, you know, I mean, all of us put up with a lot of stuff that perhaps we wouldn't want to in order to generate that atmosphere of comfort. But once you do that, once you gain that trust, then you can actually, I think, start, you know, calling people out when behavior is inappropriate. Um, you know, making sure people are aware when they're doing things that they shouldn't or saying things that they shouldn't. I'm like you most of the time. Mm-hmm. If people apologize for swearing, I'm like, Oh my God, honey, you should, you should hear what I say. Like um, you do not, that's, there are lots of things that you should probably apologize for, but swearing in front of me is not one of them.
2: Um, uh, right, right. Yeah. absolutely.
1: But uh, but no, I think I, I think that's um, I think your your example of the uh, the duckling is actually a very apt one that a lot of people will relate to. Um, so we're going to take a quick break, and when we're back, we'll have more of our conversation with Sarah you.
0: We would like to take a brief break to thank PEWin's founding sponsors, Kane Anderson Real Estate and KPMG, as well as our platinum sponsor, TPG. If you're interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at infopewin.org. Now back to today's guest.
1: So we're back with Sarah Wollner, partner at Promus Holdings, and so let me ask you this. You've had such an interesting and varied career. Is there something you would point to as the high point so far?
2: You know, i was so fortunate to have a chance to be on the ground floor at Promis. Uh, it was a, you know, very small group. I think we were maybe, you know, seven or eight people in one stapler when I started, and we had a kind of a, you know, a loose-ish vision. We knew where the direction we were heading, but I was so fortunate to be able to come in on the ground floor and help develop, um, you know, the various ways that we invest our capital. And, uh, along the way, you know, it's, I'm really not entrepreneurial by nature. It's something that, uh, you know, I'm more of a get things done person and, um, I had some great visionaries uh, who are my partners and we've gone on to do great things. So that was, that's been the highlight of my career. You know, we now are um, serving upwards of 40 or 50 families and have a variety of different alternative assets. Um, It's, it's great to have been there along the way.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's an exciting thing when, you know, your vision starts to, to pan out and you've, you realize you've identified a need in the market and, and you're, you're successful in meeting it. And so I I would say 40 or 50 families is a great hallmark of the success of the concept. Um, So, you know, we talk a lot about successes we've had, things we're proud of, but I certainly know in my case, I've had lots of things that have been mistakes, um, maybe even a failure. Are there any of those things, you know, people sometimes cloak it in teachable moments, but things places where or situations where they didn't go quite the way you had hoped and you learned something important from it?
2: You know, I, I would say it's always important, and I tell this um, through PE. Win, actually. We host a mentoring dinner every year, every other year. And one of the things I always cover at my table is being very active in deciding when are you going to, what needs to happen for you to decide it's time to leave your current role or your current firm, and you know you shouldn't maybe go into it thinking I'm not always going to be here. But along the way, if you just keep a, you know, keep a list of at what point is uh, am I a better fit somewhere else, or at what point is this no longer working for me? And I think that's one of the things I've learned along the way is that. You know, it's kind of like the old adage about, you know, as soon as you've decided it's time to terminate an employee, you know, you realize that you're six months late. Um, I think that when you're deciding whether it's time to move on, you should be proactive in that and, to, and know in advance so that when you get there, you recognize this, the signs.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I always tell people that you kind of have to open yourself up psychologically to the opportunity because that's when things will start to come your way. otherwise when you're shut down to it, you don't even see it when it presents itself. And so you're <laughs> right if you if you start to get an inkling that mm, you know this is not working for me anymore that's that's when you really need to open up your kind of feelers into the uh, into the universe to see what else is is
2: out there for you. Exactly. And maybe it's not even that things aren't working. It's just that something else could be working somewhere else better. And, you know, having the keeping those options open, um, which is something I touched on, I guess, earlier, um, is is so much healthier because, you know, there is a world of possibilities for our career and you don't need to start and end at the same place. I agree.
1: Well, so let me ask you this. How does um, how does art play a role in your life now?
2: So art in the traditional sense is, is something I still love, like you. Um, you know, I uh, just recently went to the Art Institute with my daughter, and I was so excited to show her around. Um, I really enjoy more, I'd call it applied arts, whether it's interior design or um, cooking for me is a great expression of art. I love making things. Um, so I would say it would be in, in just the opportunity to be creative and to create fabulous things.
1: I agree. You know, I I always joke that I collect art because I have no artistic talent. But the honest truth is I've never tried it. Um, mm-hmm. And I've never taken an art class. And I really, I really think I should do it because I might surprise myself. But for me, that creative outlet has come in, you know, interior design. And I don't cook. People know in my household, my husband's a professional chef. I'm actually a really good cook, but I get through like three chops and then he's like, get out of the way. Let me do that. He takes over. But um, but I think it's important for all of us to figure out if there's something like that, some creative outlet that we have, whether, as you say, it's just to go walk around a museum and clear your head or um, actually physically take on the uh, the act of of creating something, because otherwise we're so much wrapped up in our heads. Like we often cycle so much about our career or a deal or you know some relationship at work that we're having trouble with. And it's remarkable how how therapeutic it is when you just draw your brain away from that for a little while.
2: It is. I think the tough thing with art, um, and, and I'm sure this would be true of you, is that we're all very self-critical. It's part of how we get better. And being self-critical and also being an artist is, it can be uh, a very healthy cycle, you know, that helps you get better, get better, but it also makes it a little bit less enjoyable. So, I think if you approached an art class as a hobbyist, um, you know, it's like, let's say I took a knitting class, I wouldn't have to have the most perfect piece of, of uh, work when I was done, but art is something, and, you know, I kind of know you as a perfectionist, and you know, when you're second-guessing yourself and you just spend a lot of time on it, it can be very frustrating, um, though healthy, to, to just keep beating yourself up about missed opportunities.
1: Yeah, I could see that.
2: Or I wish I could do yeah. be better
1: especially when, you know, I'm fortunate to have a collection of really outstanding artists. And if I were to go to class and then come home and look at the stuff on my walls and say, oh my God, what is this thing that you did? But um, so I'm a big believer and people have heard me talk about this. I really think that P.E. Wynn, we should, you know, be doing some type of art get together, whether we try to do it at Art Basel or Freeze in New York. Um, I think, Uh, We should talk more about we've done a few events over the years on collecting art, um, but I think it's something that um, women have great eyes. And and especially if you're collecting contemporary art, you have the opportunity to interact with the artists. Uh, You would have a whole different perspective Mm -hmm. having being an artist yourself. But um, so stay tuned, PEWIN listeners, perhaps there's something like that um, coming in the future
2: And so I love it. Yes. Sign me up. We can do creating art, collecting art, so many different. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll have to do
1: like a a sip and paint or something virtually sometime and uh, do it like a around the world art class and see what everyone comes up with. I think that would be really fun. Well, so now I want to do one of my favorite parts of, of moments that made her, which is our lightning round. Uh, so my first question for you is: There a great book that you've recently read or listened to that you'd like to share?
2: I just finished *The Personal Librarian*, which is the um, based in historical fiction. The story of Belle de Costa Green, who is the personal librarian to J.P. Morgan. That was a great read wow. and a very interesting story. Ooh, that sounds fantastic. Do you have a,
1: a guilt? It was do you have good. a guilty pleasure uh, TV show that you
2: watch? Anything dragons. Um, I don't watch much TV, but uh, if there's a Targaryen in it, I'm going to love it. I love it.
1: And I, I I haven't watched the new show, but I, my husband and I watched the whole first season. And I think it's actually, for women in business, it's actually very instructive. Anybody in business. I think there's so many themes um, that show up in that show that, that are really relevant. I, for one, have been binge-watching Billions. Um, I tried to watch it years ago when it first came out and I had too much PTSD because like those figures are so real and we know them and work with many of them. Um But now I've watched it and it's just, one, it's, it's funny to see just how right they get it sometimes. It's also very funny that a lot of people in our industry pop up. They like they do cameo appearances in the show, um, which is also very interesting. Oh, I love yeah. that. Yeah. And I have to say for you, um the art in the show is fantastic. It is beautiful. They really and I was very excited. Yeah. There was one episode um when uh they were in Mike Prince's uh Chief Operating Officer's office and there was a painting behind his desk and I have I had just received a painting by that artist. I'd been waiting for a couple of years to get it and um it, it had just come and there it was. On billion, so I was very excited to see it show up.
2: Well, that's amazing. Do you remember which episode is it? Do you remember? Um, it's
1: it. I don't remember the episode number. It's in season five, and the artist is Ronald Jackson, um, and who I know also um, okay. Joanne Yu also has one of his paintings because I saw it on a Zoom call one day behind her desk. So, uh, so anyway, lo- lots of art themes. Um, so let me ask you, what's your cell phone wallpaper?
2: Um, so it's funny you ask I actually have my dog as my cell phone wallpaper only because my kids keep changing it they're getting to those pre ages where they don't like their picture to be on my wallpaper so they put the dog oh, that's funny, and they're better at using my phone than I am. <laughs> that's yeah. funny. Um, well, given that are you are you a dog or a cat person. You know, I've always wanted to be a cat person so badly. I love how independent they are. And, um, but I surround myself with dog people and, you know, dogs are good too. So I'm a dog person. Yeah. We like both. Someday. We have dogs Someday now. I'll be a cat person. We have
1: dogs now. We had cats before. Uh, now we have a little dog. Um, so what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given?
2: You know, it's something everybody will recognize and it's the advice I most often give out, which is to trust your instincts. So many times when I've, either missed something or made a mistake or, you know, when I second guess myself, I always knew that that was a question I should have asked like the very first second, you know, even the first half of a second. So our instincts are great. The older we get, the better they are. Um, unlike some things, yeah. <laughs> but uh, trust your instincts. I
1: agree. I agree. The latest advice I've been giving people is really in the context of renovation and interior design because I've done so much. And I always say, I never regret A dollar that I spend but I always regret a dollar I don't spend. The only time I've ever regretted something Mm -hmm. is when I haven't spent the money to do it right or to do it the best possible way Mm -hmm. and I have to like fight my natural instincts to try to save money or get a deal Um, so anybody who's in the midst of a renovation that's my advice for you. And so my final question for you is that is great advice right I mean you probably experienced it too um so my final question is is there anything that you we don't know about you yet anything you'd like to share
2: Um well I am a amateur mixologist and some of my some of my PE win friends know that and maybe you could say it's an expression of art like I said I like creating things um but I really enjoy mixing up interesting and unique cocktails wow well that's so interesting I just received a box of uh,
1: mixers and bitters and things like that from a company called Hella. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but they're based in Brooklyn. It's an African-American owned company and they do all kinds of sodas and bitters and margarita mixes. So I pass that along to you and and others, uh, other listeners. I'm looking forward to trying them, but um, I did not know that about you. I think that's a very cool thing, a
2: very cool skill to have. Yeah, people seem to uh, people seem to enjoy it. And I like I make everything from scratch. Um, Again, I think it's just a creative outlet for me. Well, that's fun. And Lord knows we probably all need one of those cocktails at the end of the day.
1: They hit the spot. Well, I want to thank you again, Sarah, for being our guest on Moments That Made Her. This has been such a fun conversation, as I knew it would be. um, And I look forward to the next time we're together.
2: Well, thank you, Kelly. I've really enjoyed uh, diving more into the many things we have in common and getting to know you better as well.
3: Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Moments That Made Her. I'm Scotty Wardell, co-chair of the PEWIN Communications Committee. As a reminder, the content in this recording is for general information purposes only and does not constitute advice. We give no assurance or warranty regarding accuracy, timeliness, or applicability of any of the contents of this recording. This recording is provided as is and PEWIN expressly disclaims any and all warranties expressed or implied to the extent permitted by law. Except where acknowledged, the copyright and all intellectual property rights in all material in this recording are owned by PEWIN and our affiliates and should not be reproduced without our prior written consent. Other organizations or brand names used within this recording are for identification purposes only. The content set forth in this recording may not be sold, reproduced, or distributed without PEWIN's prior written consent. Any third-party trademarks, service marks, and logos are the property of their respective owners. Any further rights not specifically granted herein are reserved. Thank you again for joining us today, and we hope you tune in for another episode soon.